0: (laughs) Well... Happy birthday, Lake Forest Church. To the hundreds of you joining us online, to those of you in the room braving the snow today, depending on where you're at up at our house, we had a good two inches, uh, but of course we live hundreds of miles from here. But it was a beautiful morning, and what a perfect day to celebrate the birthday of Lake Forest Church right here in the heart of the Westlake region. Today, Super Bowl Sunday marks our seventh birthday. Uh, how awesome is that? That is just fantastic, and we could not be more excited for for what God has done in the first seven years. It's kind of funny. We've been in this series, the whole story, walking through the Bible. And many of you have been reading along with us, and you'll remember that the number seven is a big deal in the Bible. The number seven is is kind of a marker of wholeness or completeness. And yet for us, the seventh year is really just the beginning, just the beginning of what God is doing in our church. This year, we will move into our permanent facility Uh, On St. James Road, and we cannot wait to be in there, especially as we come to the end, hopefully the end, of a very challenging and difficult season. Uh, I know many of you have been longing to be back in person, and I want to extend that invitation. Uh, If you're ready to take that step, we'd love for you to join us in person at Sally's Y over these next couple months as we prepare for this significant step that we'll take as a church. But, you know, church is way more than just a building, a building is just simply another tool that we get to use to partner with God in his kingdom work, on his mission. And that's what that verse is that Nathan read to us during the worship block. It's the promise that God made to Abraham. He said, look, I'm going to bless you, but I'm not just blessing you for your sake. That's not how, how God works. That's not how the Christian faith works. He says, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to others. And y'all, God has given us so much as a church. He's given us so many, much in terms of resources and talent and people and you all and community. And with that comes a great responsibility. He's entrusted to us the mission, his mission. And that's not simply to love God, but it's to love our neighbors. And it's to carry on the Great Commission, to make disciples of all nations, of all peoples, teaching them about the grace and love of Jesus and inviting them to join in on this mission too. And I want to give you that challenge and that invitation today. Whether you've been a part of Lake Forest since the very beginning, or whether you've just been coming in recent weeks or months, you have the opportunity to be a part of this mission. You have the opportunity to be a part of a church that is existing for something greater than itself. And that's the challenge we have in front of us. And as we celebrate our birthday, I wanted to just pray for that mission. Would you join with me as we do that? Father, we are so thankful for the work you have done through this little community called Lake Forest Church. Over these last seven years, those who have come to a saving faith in Jesus, we we worship you. We celebrate you for that. Those who have experienced healing and and wholeness here, uh, broken marriages restored, relationships healed, lives changed in real tangible ways. God, we give you the credit for all of those good things that you've done. Lord, for the lives uh, and folks in need in our community and around the state and our nation and the world that we've been a part of touching and serving, Lord, we give you the credit for that. And most of all, God, we simply worship you today because you have loved us, invited us into your family, and given us the opportunity to be a part of your mission. Lord, as we step into what this next year has for us, as we prepare to move into the building, would we be faithful to obey you, to follow you, to respond to that invitation and that challenge. And would you use us as a church to bring good news to the poor, freedom of the captive, healing to those in the world who so desperately need your touch. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well. I wish I had cupcakes for all y'all, but uh, you're going to have to stop by. I'll tell you what, that cupcake was uh, enough for me for about the rest of the year in terms of calories. So uh, go home, have some kale instead, celebrate the birthday at Lake Force, and uh, enjoy your Super Bowl today. You are in for a special treat, though. Today, we have a guest speaker that I am so excited about. Uh, Dr. Tim Laniak is not only uh, a professor of Old Testament studies at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary right here in Charlotte, he is also the co-founder of Bible Journey. Now, some of you have heard us refer to Bible Journey. Bible Journey is an online tool that you can use simply for personal enrichment. has some amazing tools that allow you to be almost as if you were right there in the Holy Land, in these famous archaeological sites learning about the Bible. But it is also a course that you can take as part of a certificate program in partnership with Gordon-Conwell Seminary. Lots more. I want to encourage you today, when the service ends, go and check out Uh, BibleJourney.org. Learn more about all of that. We have a partnership with them as our church. We've been sponsoring uh, that ministry for years. And today, we get to hear from none other than the co-founder, Dr. Tim Laniak himself. So, whether you're at home in the living room or here in the room, can we give a loud, thunderous welcome to Dr. Tim Lanier, come on up, Tim.
1: Thank you, Aaron. Thank you. Good to be with you on your birthday. Congratulations. Most people think today's big, big event is the Super Bowl, but um, not just your birthday. But I like to think that on Sundays, it's actually a pretty special time in heaven during every one of the time zones when people are joining in worship over a billion people, probably, like you. And although this might seem like a small group, and although there are some that are online, um, those numbers just sort of pale in comparison to all the people from almost every tribe, tongue, language, and nation, um, as God is assembling people that will eventually be together in heaven. So when you sing, you're singing with the angels, and it's a, it's a special day for that reason. I was was expecting to see some cardboard faces here, though, and maybe like, you know, maybe some um, planned applause that comes through the speaker system like they do in the stadiums, but I guess if you can't pull that off, it's okay. I don't know if any of you um, remember Paul Harvey, um, a newscaster, anybody remember Paul Harvey? Well, you're uh, a few of the 24 million people that listened to Paul Harvey for over 50 years as one of, well, historically, America's favorite newscaster, who had um, lots of quirky ways to do things, but one of the most famous one was uh, a special that was called The Rest of the Story. always told a little mystery story. And um, usually, you couldn't make sense of it. It was kind of a bizarre thing that didn't make sense until the very end, and there was kind of a punchline And then Paul Harvey would say, and that's the rest of the story. And then he'd say, this is Paul Harvey. Good day, right? That's how it ended. And um, So there's a book out now called The Rest of the Story. You can read some of the best of these. um, But some of them include one of America's founding fathers, who actually kept his wife locked in the basement, a 1950s presidential candidate who had killed a teenage girl, the governor of New York who dressed up like a woman at taxpayers' expense and the best-selling mystery writer who actually planned to murder someone and leave it a mystery. So those are some of the stories, and they don't make any sense at all until you're at the end. And um, so I thought maybe the subtitle for this message today would be, Abraham, the rest of the story. And that's partly because you're committed to the whole story, you're committed to this year, kind of walking through the Bible. And I want to admit for you that, for some of you, the Bible is a mystery that it's probably a puzzle, um, that maybe there's a lot of loose ends. And sometimes the the way we put it together is we say, well, it's a big story. And you try to get your hand on the storyline of the Bible and say, well, what what kind of makes it hold together? We'll we'll do that a little bit today. I want to introduce you to some handles to make sense of the Bible. But there's even more to it than that. Um, There's genealogies, there's prophecy, there's parables, there's poetry. Um, there's all kinds of things in the Bible, and you kind of say, "What? Th- this is like a big treasure box, but how does it make sense? And I'd like to just sort of give you an opportunity today to have a couple of, maybe you could think of them as code-cracking moments, you know, or little puzzle pieces that when they come together, it makes sense of the Bible. And um, first of all, I want to show you uh, a couple of ways that uh, in our Bible Journey program we make it easy for you to keep looking back at a resource and say, oh, oh, so this is how the Bible sticks together. So If you could see a timeline of um, a Bible journey, I'm hoping that they show. There it is. There it isn't. Okay. I wish you could see a timeline. There it is. And um, one of the things that you'll notice on the timeline is that we just try to use some big blocks of color to say, you know, if you want to make sense of what's in the Bible, you might see about 400 years of slavery. That's in yellow, below the timeline. And there's about 400 years of living in the promised land. And And there's about 400 years that are sometimes called the silent years, and then you're in the New Testament. Well, you'll also notice that Abraham is about 2,000 B.C. We're going to talk about Abraham today. David is about 1,000 B.C., and about halfway between them is Moses. So just on the timeline, about 2,000, about 1,500, 1,000, and then Israel goes into exile about 500 years later, and then Jesus comes about 500 years later. So you can kind of think of these big chunks. Well, I want to take you to... Another way to think about the Bible, so chronology is important, and certainly, for example, if you wanted to understand American history, you would probably go chronologically, right? But there's also topics in the Bible, themes that make the Bible hold together, and I wonder if you look at the next one, I just call this the four R's. This is a, uh, I I had a church that asked me to come and speak to their Bible class and um, they said, what, what can you do in you know, 20 minutes? I said, well, I'll just tell them what the whole Bible's about, okay? And I use this diagram to do that because this is like a little sundial that shows you um, a rhythm or a, a series of moments or seasons that you keep repeating in the Bible. God establishes a relationship based on his favor, his choice, his grace, and then invariably, People rebel, and what does God do? God actually puts people through some kind of a period of judgment, or what I'll call reckoning, and then there's restoration. And you can just watch this go round and round like a wheel throughout the whole Bible. So you just march through. Some of you are familiar in the Book of Judges. It's just like, boy, over and over again. This is what God does. And the amazing thing about this this wheel is that it didn't have to be that way. God could have created the world, and when the world went into rebellion like you've been learning about, and the flood, and the Tower of Babel, God could have said, there's something something wrong with the program. There's a virus that we can't really get rid of. So, throw it out. Start another galaxy, right? Create another Earth. You could do that, but there's this persistent graciousness on God's part to say, I can get you back on course again. We we can get this working again. And one of the amazing things in the Bible is that when God goes into plan B, so so to speak, from from our perspective, it looks like we're kind of going back again. It gets even better. The Bible just keeps getting better as people get worse to the point where Paul says in Romans, you know, should we keep on sinning so that grace keeps on getting better? You know, like that's how crazy the storyline of the Bible is. Well, I wanna suggest also that you look at the first 11 chapters of Genesis, which you just finished, okay? You're going at a fairly good clip, and those first 11 chapters are actually like a prologue or a preface to the whole Bible. And when you look at the Bible that way, you'll see an interesting connection between the prologue in the Bible, so you're at the very beginning, Genesis 1 through 11, and the very last chapters in the Bible, and they turn out to be bookends. So you, you might have to just kind of look at this graphic a little bit later and you know, sort of stop the, uh, stop the tape so you can see it. But point by point, there's a garden, there's a tree of life, there's a marriage, and it's like the very story of the Bible is consummated at the end of the Bible. Everything that was distorted, everything that was bent, everything that started right but then it went off, it all becomes part of that new Jerusalem, which is a new Garden of Eden at the end. And so that's one way to say that's the rest of the story. Everything you just started reading about, it's gonna send out uh, some storylines and they all are gonna get put together at the very end. Well, um, one of the things that these different graphics illustrate is that God is committed we might use a theological word or use a word like faithful, but he's really committed to making sure that this, this project, creation and, and getting it right, is, is going to finish. And so one of the things that I like to do is to think about all the re-words in the Bible that capture what God does. And I'd like you to just think about your favorite re-words because... These are some of the most comforting and encouraging and inspiring words in the whole Bible. God created the world. He's the king of the universe. Those are great theological truths, but they may not be as endearing as the fact that God is the one who recreates the world, the God who redeems, who restores. You know the Habitat for Humanity store? Restore, love that, restore rebuild reconcile revive restart recreate this is a great way for you to just kind of ruminate about the storyline of the bible and how it keeps giving you a reminder that the god of reconciling and renewing and recreating is at work in fact when you read the story of the flood noah came out of the ark And it was actually a huge restart on creation. Noah's like Adam and Eve. There's a garden. There's a new family that has a fresh start. It even uses the phrase that man is made in the image of God. You know, it's all these little hints to say we're restarting. And the story that we're going to look at today with Abraham is another restart. When God sees the world after the flood gets so bad, it's like the virus takes over the computer again, and God said, but I promised I wouldn't destroy the world, so I have another way to restart, and I'm going to do it through an individual, and that's Abraham, whose wife joins him on a pilgrimage of faith, which we're going to look at today. My wife and I are um, somewhere into our second year of building a house, okay? We sort of finished it before Christmas, but it looks like it's gonna take another year to actually be done. It's, uh, if any of you have ever built a house, right? Probably you're not here because you're still suffering from PTSD and you're on some kind of medication, but it's a, it's a difficult thing. One of the frustrating things about building a house is that all of the work that goes into design that supposedly finds its way onto blueprints doesn't seem to get into the heads of the subcontractors who are supposed to build according to the plans which represent the design. I mean, we had a plumber who didn't think we had asked for hot water to our sinks. Like, I don't know. I guess we didn't think about putting that on the plan, right? But, I mean, we keep fixing things that, like, should have been obvious. And I guess you know, maybe it's a little presumptuous to say we're in a support group with God, but God has this building project. He designed it, and, he, and, he, and he's working with people who don't seem to understand the blueprint, the plan for it. And so part of what we're going to do is we're going to actually say we're starting to understand how God modifies and adapts responsively to the way humans have interacted with his plan, he didn't just create robots. And as we get into the mix, we're kind of like some, you know, some partially useful subcontractors who don't get it right most of the time. And God actually does it. So we have things in our house that aren't exactly the way we planned, but they're going to be good because we made some adjustments. And so I think that's part of what you'll see in the story here. And God's doing that through Abraham. One of the things that you'll, you'll notice, and we're gonna to get to Abraham, but I'm giving you some big, big picture things because you're about the whole story. If Genesis 1 through 11 was all about the world, it's about the globe, it's about the universe. It's like the beginning of sin, the beginning of marriage, the beginning of brothers not getting along, the beginning of civilization, crafts, architecture, language, right? All the ethnic groups. I mean, Genesis 1 through 11 gives you this sort of Lord of the Rings-like map of all the nations in the world. Like, this is like the starter map for all the ethnic groups. All of this. The flood. It says the flood was over the whole earth. Like, it's, it's all about the earth. And something happens in Genesis 12. You, you met Abraham at the end of Genesis chapter 11, and then all of a sudden it just, those verses you read. The Lord said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I'll show you. This is a hinge that takes you out of this preface to the whole Bible, and it moves you into what's really kind of the introduction to what's inside the Bible, especially the Old Testament, because we're going to take this this focus on everybody. And all of a sudden, God picks out one person and says, we're going to start tracking with this person. So think about the shift between a global focus and a family focus, and I want to show you a couple of family, family lines, okay? So if you were to do, this is back before, um, you know, 23andMe and Ancestry.com. The Bible actually has had a very strong interest in genealogies, because, and I'd like you to remember this, because in the Bible the storyline follows the bloodline. So although we're, we've only recently, you know, in Western cultures gotten interested in genealogies, This is really important to follow the lines. And what the Bible shows us is that really in Genesis 1 through 11, there was already kind of a bad line and a good line. There was a line of faithless people that ended up with Lamech. And then there was a a good line that started off with Seth. And it eventually took us to Enoch, who walked with God. He apparently didn't die. He went right to heaven. And then it goes on to Noah, 10th generation. Now I'm going to take you to another... Uh, family tree which gets more complicated okay and that i'm not expecting you to notice all the names except this is what it feels like to look at a genealogy in the bible is to say oh okay this one begat that one and this one begat that one and you think what's the purpose of all this and the purpose is to actually notice that that line from before the flood after the flood and to abraham that line is going to be a chosen line from within all the families of nations in the world. God is looking at that one line, it's gonna go from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and Joseph. And Judah, one of the sons in that line, is gonna be the head of a tribe that eventually leads to David. So you're gonna go from Abraham to David, and that line leads to Jesus. So even though you might, of course, not remember all of the names that are on these um, genealogical tables, The Bible is like showing you what line God preserved, what he chose and he preserved and he he blessed. And that's kind of like a scarlet thread that runs right through the whole Bible. Okay, I want to show you a way to think about how we're going to go from this global focus to a family focus, and that will help make sense of the whole Bible in another way. Okay, so we'll go to the next one, and you'll see that... God's interest has always been in the whole world. I hope, I hope this can really stick with you. God's focus is going to start to land on one family line, and you're going to start to get to know Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac and Rebekah, and you're going to get wrapped up in a family. It looks like that's the only thing God's doing in the world. It looks like the first 11 chapters are about God working with the whole world, but then he finally sort of lands on one family. But, but notice that sort of the, the interest in the world in brown at the very beginning sort of becomes the minor focus until you get to the cross in the middle, and then it looks like it becomes the major focus. But notice that the green, which represents Israel or God's ethnic uh, family, the, the Jewish people, the Hebrews, that that line doesn't go away but it becomes sort of a minor focus in the storyline, but it's still there until the very end of time. And this is important because for many of us who are just getting used to the Bible or have ideas that we've inherited about Christianity or the Bible, we think that the Old Testament is the Jewish part of the Bible, and the New Testament is our part of the Bible, the Gentile part of the Bible, and we start to get to the point, and without realizing when we start to think, you know, the God of the Bible is sort of two different people. The God of the Old Testament is more harsh and judgmental. And that's the Jewish part of the Bible when they lived under the law. And boy, I'm glad I don't live under the law. I hear that. I hear that a lot. So I'm not caricaturing. I'm glad I don't live then because that's when everybody had 613 laws they were impossible to live by. And that was when they fought and killed each other and God wanted them to kill. So, so then God's like a different God. And then the God of the New Testament is John 3:16. God loves us, it's all about grace, mercy, and love, and about the world. God so loved the world, right? So it's sort of like we left the Jews behind. But that misses, that misses the bloodline at the base of the storyline that takes us all the way to Jesus. And I hope by the end of today you'll see why it's still important to understand the story of Abraham for you. So let's, take, let's just take a few minutes to think about Abraham, who's called God says, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you. And then God makes some promises. You could say that Abraham is the Bible's first disciple. Remember, Jesus would say to disciples at a later time in history, just follow me, and leave your family behind, leave your jobs behind. And this is really the first time that you you hear such an a clear call to just get up and leave. And in Abraham's case, God actually identifies the things that he's leaving. Leave your country, leave your people, leave your father's household. Now, for a family whose wealth is in their flocks and whose identity is in their place of origin, Abraham was giving up everything. He was giving up his reputation, because once once you leave, all that kind of social capital is gone, all the security that goes with all the bargaining arrangements and all that's gone. You know, he becomes semi-nomadic. And I think it was in Aaron's sermon last week, which I listened to, he quoted someone who said that what Abraham left behind was exactly what every human being needs and what we spend our life going after belonging security and significance in fact if you study pagan religions like those around ancient israel most of their gods had to do with providing them with security and significance and success that's another one abraham had to give it all up and what god told him was you give all this up and then I'm going to make you a great nation, I'm going to give you a descendants like the stars of the sky, and you'll bless the world. And what happens over the next chapters, all the way through chapter 24, 5 or so, you're going to keep reading about Abraham, God keeps restating these promises. So listen to what it says in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament when it celebrates all of these people in the Old Testament for their faith. By faith, Abraham, when, he called, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, he obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God." Sarah, together with Abraham, believed God, and God miraculously provided um, Isaac, who became the child of promise. So, Abraham was the first disciple, and what Abraham entered into in this life of discipleship was a prolonged period of following a God who only periodically, and I should say infrequently, showed up. God calls Abram when he's 75. Says, "Follow me. I've got great plans for you. Give up everything. I've got great plans for you. Just trust me." Ten years later, okay, Abraham's wondering, "What did we do?" I mean, you can't. You, I mean, you can't think that Abraham had regular contact with God. Uh, maybe God showed up more than we read in the Bible. But if he didn't, Abraham goes a long time on hearing something, and during that time. Those promises are obviously all delayed. He doesn't have a son, so how's he going to have children that number like the sand and the stars, right? He doesn't have any land. He has to bargain for rights even when his wife dies to buy a cave in the promised land. This is what Abram lives by, and this, you can easily agree with, characterizes the life of a disciple, The disciples who follow Jesus and those of us who follow Jesus often have long periods of waiting where God doesn't seem to say anything. And you go back and you revisit what he did say, and you wonder if you heard it right. And maybe, maybe Sarah wondered whether or not Abraham heard it right. Think about the two disciples, the sons of Zebedee, or or two other disciples that are brothers whose father had a fishing business. Maybe the father wondered if the sons heard it right. You know, you're, you're, you're impacting other people. And I think about that long journey of discipleship as one that's characterized by baffling, perplexing, destabilizing setbacks. And moments when you feel like if God doesn't say anything new, you're going to have to make a compromise or a concession or figure things out on your own. You just, you you can't just sort of wait indefinitely with some things that you feel like God's called you to do. And sometimes those demands seem unreasonable. And I'll tell you, obedience without understanding isn't something we do well with. I heard someone say that in one of the wars where um, American military were, this was somebody that had worked with a, a coalition force, he said, yeah, Americans were great. The only problem was they won't do anything unless you tell them why. They always got to know why, and then they're fine. Well, that's a problem with God because God doesn't always tell his followers why. It's almost more characteristic that he will say, follow me and trust me, because part of what you're learning is to trust him. And I actually started to understand the benefit of that with my with my own children. I realized, you know, it doesn't always help to tell kids why because What if they actually need to obey you when they can't understand something or when there's not enough time to explain something? You really need to know that there's gonna be an automatic response, yes, and that's what God's looking for. But I just want us to be fair with what it feels like to be Abram. We don't have to put him up on a pedestal. I tend to think that what God said to Abram when he said, look, follow me and I'll give you all this, I tend to think it started to feel like what you might feel like if you go to a timeshare presentation, right? 90 minutes and somebody changes the future of your life if you'll just sign here, right? And it's just amazing. Vacations all over the world with people just like you, it'll never cost you anything. It's just all part of your budget and fine. And then you kind of get out there and you wonder like, did we just pay maintenance fees again? I mean, are we, like, did we just, waste another year. Like, it just, it's not what you thought. I'm absolutely sure Abraham got himself to a place where he wondered, was it worth it? Was it right? And then uh, one unthinkable thing that I won't even get into today is when God finally gives him a son, he then asks him to take his life. So talk about, you know, feeling like you're being led into a crazy place. Well, I want to take you, so, so Abram's a great story if you want to just say, it's a story of a disciple who's learning, just like all of us, what it's like to follow. And one great name for a Christian is a Christ follower. And following should mean that we're not in charge, right? And that we're behind. By the way, if how many of you like to hike, go backpacking? Or even maybe sn- snowshoeing or, you know, I'm not sure, cross-country skiing if you live where Aaron does up in the mountains somewhere here it's snow. But... You know, one, one thing I learned was that the hardest position to be in is following. I, it doesn't matter whether or not, how, how much you've eaten, how much you've slept, how, what the temperature is. If I'm in the front of a group, I, I, I have a really good pace and everyone feels like they can't catch up. And when I'm in the back, I keep lagging behind. It's like you spend your whole life feeling like you're catching up. And I feel like that's what it was like for the disciples with Jesus. Where's he going? Just wait a second, wait a second. Just want to process, I want to catch up. So one takeaway is read the story of Abraham and think about what it's like to follow. But there's something that God says to Abraham almost in passing, which is part of the rest of the story. And that's in Genesis 15, God puts him into a sleep and he says, look, you can trust me, I'm gonna keep my promise. But he says this to Abram while he's sleeping, or while he's in this trance. Know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. This, this is a very significant flashing red light. Your descendants are supposed to have this land of milk and honey, all this bounty, descendants so numerous, and they're gonna be blessing the world, and all of a sudden, 400 years, they're gonna be slaves, and afterward, they will come out with great possession. Okay. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here to the promised land. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Now, that's, that's a, a perplexing phrase. That's kind of a conundrum. What, what, what's the sin of the Amorites? God gave Abram the promise that he'd be living in the promised land And now he said, well, actually, yeah, in 400 years. That means after you die, after your children die, four generations are going to go by. In fact, 400 years will go by before they come into the land. And that's because the people who live there, called the Canaanites or the Amorites, the people who live there have another timeline that God's working on. This takes a few minutes to process. When God called Abram, Abram probably thought, this is what God wants to do with me. He wants to bring favor and blessing into my life so that I can bless others. And then God in this dream says, oh, by the way, I have a timeline for you, and it's toggled with a timeline I have for the Amorites, and they're not bad enough yet. Remember the flood? God waited until every inclination of the human heart was evil. And then he brought the flood. People say, was the flood fair? Was it just? Was it right? Well, the question is, why did God wait so long? That's a better biblical question. Why did he wait so long? He actually waited until it was so foul and so fouled up that there was no other way to do it. And he waits until the sin of the Amorites is going to be at a place where he can introduce a solution. And that's going to be Abraham's family who are going to go through 400 years of slavery to get there. So this is part of the rest of the story, that your story is not just about you. Abraham's story wasn't just about Abraham. God had a plan for the nations, and his part in that family focus was for God to reach the nations in their time. I want to take you to a graphic that I use sometimes to refer to these stories as onions. Okay? You got a little story about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Abraham and Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael. You're going to meet all these people. Those are individual stories, and they make up a little bundle of stories in a cycle. And they all have meaning. They all have merit. They're all worth studying. But don't get stuck there because the Bible is actually linking you, sometimes with these little phrases, linking you to the bigger storyline, the one that will take you to the rest of the book of Genesis to the rest of the first five books of the Bible, to the rest of the Old Testament, to the rest of the Bible. He's linking you, and eventually you start to realize that the Bible is about God and His story, about His faithfulness, His promises, His sovereignty. What is He trying to do on the earth? It's not about you. It is about you, but if you read The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren, the very first sentence, perfect. It's not about you. We have to get rid of that that initial reflex that maybe Abraham had, that when God makes a promise to us, when He saves us, when He brings us into His family, He's not just rescuing us. He has a massive plan going on. You know, it's almost like some of us, are, are, we're, we're, we're in a musical uh, group of just the wind, the, you know, the windset, the woodwinds, or the, the percussion, or the brass. And we just think that God's working with us because we've got this whole thing figured out. And then all of a sudden, at some point, he puts the whole symphony together and our part is part of this bigger part. And we realize that God's been conducting and coaching and working with everybody all together. And we think, well, boy, now what I was doing, now what he asked me to do fits into that bigger plan, the bigger puzzle. Well, now, there's more to the story. I want to take you to the New Testament to close out. It says in Galatians 3 that Abraham believed God, this is in the New Testament, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. In God's global interest, when he focused on Abraham, he was thinking of you. He wanted what Abraham did and what A- how Abraham believed and followed to turn into blessing for the nations, and that's what the gospel is. It's the blessing to the nations that God had promised, and it came through Jesus. The next chapter in Galatians. Now, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, you are children of God of promise. Therefore, brothers and sisters were not children of the slave woman, but of the free. Abraham and Sarah had a child named Ishmael through surrogacy. They had Sarah's maid become pregnant by Abraham to have a child because they gave up waiting for God. And it says in the New Testament, we're not children of human uh, cleverness. We are siblings with the child of promise. And so now the big picture starts to make sense. This is the rest of the story. God needed to start a brand new nation after all the other nations in the world were corrupt. He needed a brand new creation that was so outside of human possibility that Abraham and Sarah had to be 99 and 100 to have a child that could only be explained as a miracle. And that's our bloodline not through human heredity, but that's the bloodline that the storyline is on that says anyone who is actually a believer has now the blood of Christ saving them, putting them into that genealogy. But it gets even better than that. We're not just slaves or servants, we're sons in God's family, yes. So God's family, our father Abraham, it puts us in God's family. But listen to what the Bible says about Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. This isn't just about God's family. This is about God's friends. And Jesus said, "I no longer call you servants. This is what he says to the ones who followed him. I've told you everything. I've opened my heart. I've given it to you, and I'm not calling you servants. I'm calling you He said, a a servant doesn't know his master's business, but I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. The family tree, let me show you the family tree. This is the rest of the story. The family tree goes from Abraham down to Judah, down to David down to Jesus, down to you. And that's the rest of the story. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you've included us in the whole story of the Bible, that you intended us to be in this family that traces its roots to Abraham and his faith and to you as our father, and of all things for you, to confide in us, and to call us your friends. We thank you for a story that puts us in our place, that it's not all about us, but it's also not only all about them. We thank you that in a strange and miraculous way, this is our story. It is about us. And we can find our identity and our security
0: and our significance in you. In Christ's name, amen.